Welcome to the second series of By Design. My name is Bruce Boucher, and I'm director of Sir John Soane's Museum. Soane's idea for his museum was to be an academy of the arts, where art, architecture, and design could be discussed, explored, and celebrated. It's with this in mind that we have collaborated with Luke Irwin, the distinguished rug designer, who feels passionately about the role of design and whose support has been fundamental to this series. Chaired by Alice Roththorne, design writer and critic, and Will Gompertz, artistic director at the Barbican, these talks explore the impact of design on several internationally renowned designers. And you can find podcasts of the first series on our website, sewn.org. For this second series, we invited Dan Pearson, Ilsa Crawford, Erdem Moraliolu, Amanda Levite, and Phyllida Barlow to present an object that has inspired them, and through that object, to reflect on their own design practice. We originally launched the second series in February 2020 with Alice Roththorne talking to the designer Dan Pearson at the Sone. And we're pleased to present the remaining talks through a series of individual events filmed at the museum. Thanks to our collaboration with Luke Irwin, we are not charging for these talks, but it would be wonderful if you would consider making a contribution, which would enable us to continue our wider learning programs. And you can do so on Sone.org. I hope you enjoyed the talk. Hello, Ed Amaraglioglu is one of our most successful designers. He has defined a distinctive design language of beautifully constructed clothes steeped in an ethos of empowering femininity that not only make the wearer look and feel glamorous, but strong and confident too. Edem was born in Canada to an English mother and a Turkish father. He studied fashion design in Toronto and then here in London at the Royal College of Art. After graduating, he spent a year in New York, then returned to London to launch his own label in 2005. Very quickly, Erdem became a star of London Fashion Week. He won countless awards and his collection is now sold by over 170 retailers worldwide and at his flagship store in Mayfair here in London, which was designed by his husband, the architect Philip Joseph, who he met at the Royal College of Art. Edem has also collaborated with H&M on a capsule fashion collection and with NARS on cosmetics, while forging cultural collaborations with the Royal Ballet and the National Portrait Gallery to reflect his passion for dance and for art. So Edem, welcome to By Design. And as is traditional, the Sewn Museum has invited you to choose one object that you find particularly inspiring. Characteristically, you've chosen two. <laughs> so what are they? Um, well, hello, Alice, and thank you, thank you so much for having me. Um, so the two objects I chose were, they're kind of almost bookend objects, I would say. One is a, um, a Victorian uh, jacket. Uh, it's part of a, a wedding outfit, so it would have had a matching white bustle, and it's um, a kind of beautiful ivory duchess hand-sewn uh, wedding jacket. And the other object is a black um, morning jacket, and I thought both objects kind of spoke beautifully to, to each other in a way. There's a, you know, one symbolizes the beginning of something and of course the other represents the end. And there's something um, just kind of extraordinary about them in that one is the kind of positive version of the other. They both, they both almost feel like one thing actually. And so how are there singular personalities or their singular purposes, the beginning and the end, how are they reflected in their construction? 
Well, I mean, the wedding, the, wed the upper of the wedding outfit particularly is, 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 is interesting. It's almost completely threadbare. And if you look on the inside of it, you have these beautiful bits of boning that have been sewn into each uh, seam and just all very beautifully by hand. Um, and the morning jacket, um, perhaps was worn less, is in, it feels almost like a newer, a newer jacket. Um, but it's, um, it's wonderful in these kind of like almost cookie cutter Victorian proportions that you would have seen in around 1870. There's like something so wonderful about the kind of the strictness of the, the proportions, the kind of nipped in rib cage. And of course, the kind of little um, almost garters that connect it to uh, the bustle and the skirts. It's wonderful. Beautiful. And do you often buy antique pieces as inspiration for your own collections? Um, I particularly have a fondness for um, Victorian um, clothing, particularly the, the, um, the bodices or jackets, like the ones that you see today. I find the construction of them so fascinating. And actually the insides are just probably even more fascinating to me than the outsides. Um, but also love looking at things from the 1930s, particularly the way um, the um, dresses generally were cut then, the pattern cutting is, is so kind of extraordinary. But um, definitely I have, a, I have a love of Victorian clothing. And um, why did you choose to focus on fashion? Well, um, fashion was always something that I was very, um, that, I was, that I was fascinated in from, from, as long as I can remember, I was always fascinated by um, my, my mum, her clothes, um, the way that um, women were depicted in films, um, which um, often I was exposed to at a very young age. My mum, being kind of very homesick for, for England, often watched Merchant Ivory films, and I'm sure that <laughs> kind of planted this kind of strange seed of, of, of um, and would lead to eventually my, my penchant for, for buying things that are Victorian. But, exactly. um, but um, I mean, really, truly, as long as I can, uh, I, as long as I can remember, I remember drawing women as, um, as a child and, and being very kind of drawn to how women moved, how they talked. Even I remember looking at, you know, my mum's makeup, the kind of the, a, pal a makeup palette or looking through her closet of the dresses hanging there. I was just kind of completely fascinated by that world. Um, I also wonder, I have a twin sister and, and, and being able to kind of see someone who is you and who's a part of you, but who's the opposite sex and grow up every part of your life with, with someone who is the opposite sex to you, I think I'm sure kind of definitely um, influences you. There was, there was never an association with femininity as a, as a kind of, as a, as a, a, a weaker sex. It was a... I should hope not. Ever. And it was, um, but it was something, I think often as a child, as a, as a, as a boy, you know, there's kind of very strict kind of gender roles, let's say. And um, I think in having a twin sister, those roles kind of actually faded away. And of course, sorry, your twin sisters, an award-winning documentary filmmaker, so a very dynamic sibling indeed. Um, very stylish, very much in her own way, as was your mum. I remember you had a photograph of her on one of your show invitations some years ago, and she just looked stunning. So do you feel it was their influence, or were there other factors that prompted you to choose women's wear rather than men's wear? Um, 
It's, that's a very good question. Um, and I never felt like I was particularly drawn initially to, to menswear. The draw for me was always um, the, the dream of creating a, a collection for, for women. Women's wear was something that I, I felt I understood and, and something that I felt I had um, a language for. I think my handwriting was always had, to a certain extent, a, a, a kind of a, a femininity to it. So it was, it was really, truly all I, all I knew in a way. And, 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 and to be honest, really very much what I was interested in. As the past 15 years have kind of flown by, I think definitely um, brief experience designing men's when I did the collaboration with um, H&M in 2017. And there was something very interesting about that process of designing for, for myself and, and also then being able to apply menswear in those proportions to then women, which was which was interesting actually it it um almost had a, a had a had an effect or a knock-on effect on how i designed for women which is interesting and if we go back to the beginning of your career fashion is obviously a brutally competitive field and every year thousands if not tens of thousands mm. of fashion graduates leave college all intent on launching their own labels what were your expectations at that point what were your hopes and what did you reasonably expect to achieve I think my hopes when I was at the Royal College, I mean, the Royal College was, was, was amazing. Um, I, I, I so absolutely loved my time there. And I remember going to extraordinary lectures with Wolfgang Tillmans with the photography department, or I remember seeing um, an amazing lecture with Hussein Chalayan, but for the architecture department. It was all about kind of cross-pollination and collaboration, working with amazing printers or embroidery students. and that that was very much encouraged um i think my expectations uh, when i graduated was that I, I i knew i always wanted to have my own label that was always the dream from from the very beginning even if you asked me when i was eight years old what i wanted to do and it was it was that it was to have my own label and and to have a, and to design collections, but you know, at that time as I was graduating from the Royal College in two thousand and three, I think my hope was to actually get a get a um, a job in Paris and to work for two years, three years, learn as much as I could. And um, at the time, um, the opportunity came up to to move to New York, and um, I did so. And and in a way, that experience was was interesting because it really cemented the fact that I actually really truly wanted to begin my own collection and, and as soon as possible. So really my, my time in New York was just less than a year um, and came back to the UK um, and kind of worked backwards on how to figure out how to create the first collection. You know, actually I went back to the RCA and worked with a lot of the seamstresses that had helped me put together my graduate collection and really kind of cobbled my first collection together. And that's, that's really how it began. And can you talk about the context in which you were operating early on? Um, because it was a period when the London fashion scene was very different. And also globally, the fashion industry was in a period of dislocation with the sudden growth of online retailing. I, well, I mean, in terms of London Fashion Week, it was very different. I mean, the, um, you know, in terms of who was showing, you had um, labels like Boudicca or um, Robert Carey Williams. Um, I think Giles had just had his first collection. Roxanda 
had started to show. Um, and so um, it, was, it was quite different to what it is now. Um, also, you didn't necessarily have international editors or buyers coming to London. And also in 2005, 2006, online retail hadn't quite started yet. Net-a-Porter hadn't quite began yet. Um, I think what was interesting about the shift to online um, was, I suppose, coincidentally, my, I'm, I've always been very fascinated in, in textiles and often um, really my interest in, in embroidery and prints began from not being able to kind of really find the fabrics that I wanted to use to create the collection. So I'd create the fabrics. Um, and one of the easier ways at the time was to create them digitally. And I think there was something about kind of having a language that was colorful and textural that allowed the clothing to be read on a screen, actually, that, that maybe, maybe worked in a way. It was, um, yeah. But also it seemed to me as a customer that Net-a-Porter matches Farfetch. They were very interested in mm. young emerging designers. So I've always felt that for your generation mm. uh, and for your peers too, like Roxander, it was an advantage to be picked up by what would become very powerful retail forces rather than waiting mm. several years to sort of build your physical presence. And also I would assume that you benefited because as you said, when you started, London Fashion Week really wasn't on mm. the international calendar, but then it was. It was run much more professionally, many more international media and buyers came and it became a much slicker, higher profile operation. So do you feel that your generation benefited from that? I mean, uh, definitely. I think we, we did. It was also like a different kind of generation. I think my, my, when I think about my peers and those of us who started around that time and that are still showing, um, it was, you know, it was also a time for independent labels. It was a, it was a time for, you know, designers that, that are also in part involved in, in how their studios and businesses are, are run. Um, so it was, it, there was definitely a rise of kind of independent labels, which made London really, really exciting and very different to any other um, city, like Paris and Milan, you just didn't have young independent designers. I think there was often this idea that, you know, as a designer, you, um, you create a few collections independently, and then you kind of fall under the, you know, the wings of a, of a large um, luxury conglomerate, and, and you're then, then everything's kind of taken care of. I think um, in, in, in so many ways, kind of London actually kind of defied that in, in encouraging kind of independent designers to, to create. And another fascinating facet of your generation is that you're friends. Yeah. And um, I've always found that very engaging, but also have assumed it's very useful in the same way that um, in the 90s, the young British artists, the YBAs, were friends. So they all collectively made more impact together. But I mean, you're good mates with Roxander, Christopher Kane, and so on. Has that been helpful to you? I definitely think so. I definitely... Um... I definitely think to, you know, to have a shared experience with someone and to be able to talk about certain situations that are happening and it's um, absolutely, it's, it's really, it's, it's wonderful to have that 
around you and that sense of community, I think is a very odd, you know, it can be kind of quite isolating in a, in a strange way, particularly when you begin and when you're dealing with lots of different factors that affect everything um, in terms of, you know, whether it's dealing with buyers or even, you know, opening your first store, all of these things can often feel be a, a minefield. So absolutely, to have close, close friends who you love doing the same thing is, is great. Rather than scissors at dawn, the stereotype. Not, um. not too many scissors at dawn. <laughs> Just as well. <laughs> and one distinctive factor in everything you do is that it is so singular. You have an incredibly consistent visual identity, but also a consistent spirit to every element of Erdem, from the clothes themselves to the shows, the store, the typography, and so on. Where does this come from? And did you always want to do that in terms of developing a brand rather than simply designing collections? I mean, I think there was, I think I was always very interested in the kind of the codes of femininity and what femininity meant to to me, what I defined as as, as femininity and how I applied that to the collections. Um, and I think also this kind of distinct handwriting was something that I always I always had. I, you know, I couldn't help but have it. Um, whatever I turned my hands to would would inevitably look like look like my own so it was um it wasn't necessarily um something that I was like acutely aware of creating you know a brand identity I was it was you know the brand identity became my my handwriting and that my handwriting is you know it's a very natural gesture in, in what I create every every season and and I do think um you know, that it, that's, I think, when things become very exciting is, is when you then start um, applying that kind of handwriting to other things. And certainly, like, when we opened the store on South Audley Street to, to be able to kind of take a kind of a language and create a space, that was, um, you know, that was a really interesting process, which I went through with, with my husband, Philip, um, who's an architect. And that was, I think what was interesting about that is that we both came from very different places. His, his um, you know, architecture is, is, is of course, um, about a kind of a total permanence of a space and, and, and something that lasts in a way forever. Whereas my world is about change and how that change happens, you know, every three months. And so I think the challenge for Philip was to kind of create a space that had um, a consistency and could adapt to the changings of those, those collections. And um, I think the approach that, um, that he took was so um, clever because it was really became about um, the woman and how she would live and how she would collect these items and what art she would look at and what's the furniture that she would live with and what's the kind of carpet that she would have under her bare feet as she's changing into a dress into the changing room. So it was kind of almost a, approaching it in a very kind of forensic way was was very um, interesting. 
But it's very fun to visit because there always are new things to look at and um, new objects to, to discover, which makes it very intriguing. But could you talk us through um, the development of one collection? And mm. I'd like to talk about your latest collection, which is the, the Fall 2021 mm. collection, and how you developed it from the concept through to the prototyping and fabrication mm of the pieces and the show? Well, um, fall, fall, winter 2021, I think the seeds for that collection were really planted around um, three years ago. I did um, a collaboration with the Royal Ballet. I was invited, uh, I was invited by um, Kevin O'Hare, the director of the, of the Royal Ballet, to, um, to work on a piece um, with Christopher Wielden. It was, a, it was a piece called Corbantic Games that Christopher was creating for, for the ballet. It was for the Bernstein centenary. And what was so interesting about that exercise of designing costumes, Christopher was very, you know, absolutely sure he didn't want colour, print, texture. It was about, you know, it was about the dancers and their bodies and that movement. And um, I was very interested in the fact it was for the Bernstein centenary. So around, it was, you know, celebrating that music that came out in the late... 40s, early 50s, and and so my starting point was looking at the kind of underpinnings of of the kind of 1950s bras, underwear, and Corbantic refers to this kind of Grecian kind of Grecian youths and athletes and kind of kind of strength, and um, there was something about kind of almost combining kind of these kind of this kind of Grecian purity and the kind of the, um, the underwear, but I'm, I'm going off on a tangent because I'm telling you too much about those costumes. But they, they definitely, um, working with the dancers and those fittings definitely kind of planted the seed of, of what I was, what I knew would one day be a ballet collection. And I remember standing in the wings um, at, the, at the opera house and on one side of the stage, backstage, is a huge poster of Nureyev. And um, it, it made me think, Gosh, the, the kind of the extraordinary um, dance, the extraordinary arc of a dancer's career, particularly his his relationship with Margot Fontaine, whom he started to dance with when she was forty three and he was twenty two, and actually that that relationship would then um, lead her to dancing for almost two more two more decades, um, up until she was almost in her in her well she was in her sixties before she really simply couldn't dance anymore um, and there was something about that kind of stealth determination that I found so kind of inspiring and and so that was really the kind of the starting point for the collection usually when I start a collection I there's 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 a narrative there's some kind of story or character and I definitely think that I couldn't say that the collection was um, a kind of a biopic of, of Margot Fontaine it wasn't it was it was more about that kind of that determination and almost a kind of like Hitchcockian kind of energy that happens, you know, when the curtains are closed as the dancers kind of walk onto the stage and take their position and before something begins. And that, I've, that I, found, I found so interesting. So um, from there I started um, researching kind of ballet, ballet costumes, rehearsal costumes, and also um, a kind of the golden age of of dance, Frederick Ashton, looking at all of those costumes that were created for his ballets. And often, particularly the Ashton ballets had a lot to do with um, scale. So like kind of bodices that had very gigantic big crystals on it so that they could be read in the last 
by the last row of the um, auditorium. The exactly. <laughs> and, um, you know, these kind of slightly off proportions and the mixture of the kind of um, formal and informal I found kind of completely, um, you know, um, fascinating. Even also looking at beautiful rehearsal images of, of Marco Fontaine with, with Nureyev, you know, she was kind of, everything was stripped back and she would wear these kind of tightly ribbed wool kind of leotards and no makeup and her hair just kind of messily done up. And, you know, you'd go from that to the kind of, the kind of the prima ballerina stepping on stage to, you know, her and her kind of extraordinary collection of, of couture. There were these kind of different facets to her that were kind of almost quite contradictory that I found fascinating. So yeah, from there, from that research, then I started to sketch and, and, and I found myself kind of drawing these very kind of quite almost kind of very exaggerated shapes and, and, and quite balletic um, and nipped. And, and with Corbantic Games, I was looking at a lot of pleading. So, you know, again, exploring this idea of, of pleading, but then applying it to coats. But maybe the coats were embroidered with little swan feathers to kind of represent a kind of a nod to Swan Lake. So there were always these little clues as to kind of what the idea of the collection was. And in terms of the show, um, yes. where obviously you worked with the, the Royal Ballet or on the show, can you explain how that came about? Well, um, knowing that I was going to do this collection based on dance, I approached Edward Watson, who's a, an extraordinary principal dancer at the, at the, at the company, and I, I thought it would be amazing to work with someone to almost act as like a movement coach and to direct the models moving across the stage and almost to recreate this kind of moment where the dancers kind of take their position before the curtains open. And then talking to Ed, the idea came about that maybe we would incorporate a mixture of dancers that are retired and still dancing and some that are still dancing. Um, so there was one um, extraordinary dancer named Marguerite Porter who um, it, now retired, but just extraordinary. She was invited by um, Nureyev to dance in the lead role of Swan Lake when she was 17. And, and um, you know, she's, she was amazing. And just to see her kind of glide across the stage, you know. She and, looked incredible in the, the show. Uh, and of course, this was a, a COVID show. I mean, traditionally, certainly in recent years, you've shown in the National Portrait Gallery. Yes. Um, and they've been wonderful in giving you a lot of freedom in terms of sets, creating sets and different visual contexts there. Um, how different was it to film the collection rather than stage the conventional show? Well, it's, it's, it was, it's such a kind of a strange time. So actually it's the fourth collection that we've done in lockdown um, and the second show in, in lockdown, the spring summer show uh, was filmed outdoors in Epping Forest. Um, and this, this show was staged at the Bridge Theatre. And so it required, you know, everyone being tested, um, you know, absolutely doing everything with social distancing. Um, and, you know, incredibly challenging, but, but also, you know, there was a kind of a tremendous freedom to being able to take a whole day to, you know, to film the show and to, to kind of really take your time and, and kind of to kind of create a, a body of work. Was one benefit of presenting 
the show as a film all at once? Is it that it's more accessible and democratic rather than an elite audience yes. seeing the show, it then being dribbled out through social media? Well, I mean, the collection always has to be shared in a democratic way. You know, ultimately, the show, a live show, is seen by 500 people. And, of course, your audience is much wider than that. So you always have to figure out ways to communicate the collection in a clever way that gives an audience who's not at the show physically um, the ability to kind of experience what you're trying to say. So that's that in that sense that hasn't changed because you always need to try to deliver that. But certainly when there's no audience whatsoever, you 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 know there's even more pressure to kind of figure out how to kind of communicate the story of the of the collection and. Um, there was something about this collection, particularly in filming it at the Bridge Theatre with the spotlight and having the kind of the models become dancers and the dancers become models and the kind of say so kind of meandered through the spotlight that was just it was just kind of wonderful and kind of felt quite you know had that kind of Hitchcocky energy that I was talking about that I wonder would we have been able to achieve that in in a live show maybe there was something kind of wonderful about being able to take our time and certainly working with Ed in choreographing the models and the dancers there were you know it it afforded us a moment that would have been kind of quite hard to recreate um, live. And you talked about your collaboration with Ed um, on that particular show with Philip on the store yes. but you have a lot of other collaborators too who you've worked with for many years can you talk about them and what that community brings to your work? Well, I mean, definitely, um, as you mentioned, the National Portrait Gallery was um, instrumental. Um, there was one collection um, based on um, two sisters known as Stella and Fanny, who were Frederick Park and Ernest Bolton, who were two men who lived as women. And um, they were, um, this is about 20 years before the trial of Oscar Wilde. And, um, and um, I was researching... Um, effectively kind of Victorian um, queer culture Victorian queer culture and, and the National Portrait Gallery has an extraordinary archive to be able to kind of delve into and that that kind of um, research and access is 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 so absolutely important when you're trying to put um, a collection together um, but yeah absolutely collaborations with with whether it was the National Portrait Gallery, the Royal Ballet, or even a painter like Kate Donaghy, who came, you know, who created an extraordinary piece of art for the store, to um, collaborations with um, NARS, uh, you know, that I've done in the past. It's, um, I think there's something very exciting about that kind of exchange. Um, I think probably the most um, consistent collaborations have been those with um, fellow fellow kind of students, uh, like the people that I went to college with, I, I think often of Noel Stewart, who creates all of the extraordinary um, millinery for the show. And he, he, um, he was studying millinery when I was studying women's wear. And uh, he's an absolute kind of force of nature or the amazing Kirsty McDougall, who's an, a, a brilliant weaver, Jenny King, who does beautiful embroidery. These are all kind of amazing um, colleagues and collaborators that I, I rely on season on season to, 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 you know, to create with. And there's something kind of wonderful about that. And fantastic that those friendships forged at art and design school have continued 
sense as, as all your careers have, have developed. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably one of the most important aspects of, of attending an, an art college, you know, is, is that, um, you know, when you start to collaborate with people, I think things become very interesting. Now, I remember Philip Tracy once saying that the Royal College was like a village. It was just full of the most extraordinary creative people. One of the unusual facets of your approach to being a fashion designer, not that this is unique to you because other designers have done the same, is that um, you're very engaged in the running of the business. So could you talk about how that came about and also what sort of skills and networks you needed to acquire in order to do it? I mean, I think it came out of probably um, necessity, being an independent label. I, I mean, I went to art college. I didn't, I didn't study business in any way, shape, or form. So the kind of the question of my business acumen is 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 a, a scary question because I'm unaware if I if I have any. But I, I definitely what I do have is 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 a, a very questioning mind, and I, I'm always if I'm unsure about something, I I ask questions. Um, and so I think really, truly, um, it's, it's come out of, as I said, necessity, but, but also I've been very fortunate to work with an extraordinary um, team in the, in the studio. Um, but I think there's something very exciting about, um, about being independent and there's a kind of tremendous um, freedom to being independent and, and something that I'm, I'm very proud of for all of us in, in, in the studio. Another stereotype that many designers in your positions have followed, and you alluded to it earlier, is to go and work as creative director for one mm. of the big global brands. Has this ever been anything that has appealed to you? Um, I mean, I think the idea of working in Paris has always been um, a dream, and, and particularly um, a house that has a, you know, an extraordinary history. Of course, that's such an exciting idea. But... Um, in truth, whenever that those conversations have happened, it's always been um, kind of really about choosing between what you're doing at the moment or or go leaving, and 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 that's never been a question. Of course, especially, and this is I'm I'm talking about very early on. You know, um, now fifteen years um, on, it would it would be completely out of the question, and and. Um, to answer the question, I think, I think it's, there's also something really wonderful about focusing on one thing, and there's a tremendous freedom in that that I, that I very much enjoy. Well, I mean, it's a very pragmatic approach because so many designers have succumbed to gilded offers, have split their mm. focus and have regretted it. I think it's incredibly difficult to combine multiple roles as a, a creative director. And we've talked about um, how different the fashion world was at the beginning of your career. And then there was this period of rapid change. And of course, we're very much at a watershed, not only in the fashion industry's mm. development, but the rest of society's development now because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the damage it has caused, the mm. reset buttons it's been pressing. What do you feel its long-term impact will be on fashion? And what, which areas of the industry need to change to be fit for purpose in the future? And which would you be loath to lose? Well, I think, I definitely think there was something that was completely unsustainable 
sustainable about about where the, the the direction that the industry was going into, particularly um, around travel. There was always the expectation that you that you should and would travel all the time. So I definitely think that um, the pandemic has has absolutely kind of shut down the idea that you need to you know be jumping on an airplane every three days in order to kind of do your job. Um, so that side, I definitely do, do not miss. What I do miss is definitely live events. And we touched on it earlier, but the show, I think the kind of the beauty of having a live event and showing a body of work every six months is, is very, very important. I also think um, being able to have um, the showroom, you know, open and running and being able to have your partners be able to come and see um, the clothes in, in person. And when I say partners, I mean retail partners that, you, that, that we've been collaborating with for many, many years. You, you need to be able to share and show the clothes in person. Um, so that's, that's very, very important. And of course, the most important is, is um, our home, our store in South Audley Street. Of course, welcoming back our customer and being able to engage with our customer again face-to-face -face is, is, is so, so important. And do you feel that the financial turmoil that the pandemic has caused mm. will have an impact on fashion culture, that a number of established brands will fall by the wayside because their financial problems will be irresolvable, so it could be an opportunity for a new generation of designers to emerge? I mean, it's, it's, it's def there will definitely be... Um, you know, a, a fallout from this pandemic. And, and I'm sure that will result in certain designers not being able to, um, to continue. Um, you know, as in anything in life, there's always an another generation that is, that is ready, to, ready to follow. But I'd, I'd like to think that actually, maybe it's gonna be an opportunity for for some of us to, to become stronger and more agile. I mean, certainly that's what it's forced us to do and, and to really look at what's working and what's not working and, and, and also be able to adapt to the customer's needs. I think when this pandemic began, you either kind of froze or you, you, you acted. And, and I think that kind of ability to act and change and be agile is, is completely important. And, and strangely, maybe this opportunity and this pause kind of allows you the headspace to kind of really think about, you know, the future. Hmm. And also a lot of people have decided that they want their future to be dramatically different. But you're clearly still very much focused on fashion and, and on Adam. So what are your ambitions for the future? I think my ambitions for the future are really to be able to um, to engage with, um, with my, my client more directly. And I think that can come in so many different ways. I think um, being able to have, um, like the South Audley Street, a world that a customer can walk into, I think is, is so, so, so important. So being able to expand that world into, um, you know, into different countries is, is something that I find hugely, hugely exciting. Um, and also being able to engage with her online in different ways and, and being able to really focus on how to, how to kind of engage with her in a more personal way digitally, I think is, is, is also very important. Um, I think there's also so much um, in terms of 
of other worlds like um, beauty, which I touched on with, with NARS um, about three years ago, which I found very exciting. Um, and also, you know, the world of scent, I think is something that's very, very, very interesting. So there's, there's so many, there's so many different worlds I'm, I'm interested in. And also one world, which has always been a dream is, 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 is bespoke and, you know, the world of, of couture, the idea of, of making things that are just strictly made to measure, which I find also kind of wonderful and, and fascinating. And would you want to do that within a couture context, which is very specific, or would you prefer a, a bespoke service in a less formal, more singular way? Well, we currently have a bespoke service, which has been, which is, which we, we, in a way, we've always had, but now absolutely has been growing in a much more focused way. So being able to, um, you know, create um, pieces like bridal pieces or. Um, bespoke tailoring, things like that. Um, we have so many different clients with so many different specific needs. Um, I think the context of creating a collection specifically around bespoke pieces, i.e. a couture show, is, is something that I find really wonderful and, and exciting as well. And when you talked about clients, you spoke about her. Are there yes. no plans for him too? You never know. <laughs> Erdem, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Alice. It's lovely to see you. Thank you for watching. If you enjoyed the talk, it would be great if you would consider making a contribution which would enable us to continue our wider educational programs. And you can do so on sown.org. We appreciate your support and look forward to welcoming you back to the Sown again soon.